Welcome to SAS Talk with Kim, your sustainability action series podcast highlighting how local governments are leading the way toward a more sustainable future. I'm your host, Kim Lundgren. I've spent the last 16 years working for and with local governments to help them create resilient, inclusive, thriving communities. I started this podcast series to connect you with the key people on the ground putting sustainability into action in their communities. Okay, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to SAS Talk with Kim. This is our sustainability action series. We're still talking about resilience here, and today we have quite a treat for you. We have Timothy Burrows with us. Timothy is the Chief Resilience Officer for the City of Berkeley, California, and one of my former ICLEI colleagues. Timothy, thanks so much for joining us today. Ken, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. <laughs> so I know that, uh, of course, you and I go back a long ways, and you've been working in this local government space for quite some time, but you've been in this uh, Chief Resilience Officer role now for about just over two years. Is that right? That's right. And as one of the first 100 Resilient Cities recipients, uh, you know, Berkeley's kind of been ahead of the game, which isn't surprising. Of course, you guys uh, typically are paving paths for others. Um, I wonder, though, before we dive into the specifics of your work there, I want for the audience's sake um, to have you maybe describe for us some of these key terms that... 100 Resilient Cities has put out when really thinking about resilience and, you know, in particular, I know they talk about kind of the looking at shocks versus stressors um, and kind of thinking about resilience uh, more broadly. Could you kind of give the audience a little sense of what they mean by that? Yeah, sure. So resilience, let's start with the term resilience, the overarching term, because it's getting used a lot and it's, I think it's probably achieved buzzword status at this point. And Depending on who you ask, it, it might mean something um, a little bit a little bit different. So, so for us in, in Berkeley, and I think for the Rockefeller Foundation, 100 Resilient Cities, who we've we've partnered with to develop our resilience strategy, resilience is not an, an issue specific term. It is not it is not just about preparing for a natural disaster, an earthquake, or a hurricane, for example, and it's not just about preparing for climate change. And it's not just about economics or, or, or social challenges that we face. Resilience is really more of a, of a practice or, or an approach that focuses on designing policies and, and programs and services in a way that can help address more than one challenge at once and create multiple benefits for multiple stakeholders in the, in the community. Um, and so for us, uh, what, that, what that looks like is, is working to design approaches that really foster engagement within our own organization, multi-departmental, multidisciplinary engagement, and engagement within the community to address multiple challenges at, at once. So let me give you an example of what that, what that looks like. Um, one of the things we're focusing a lot on here in Berkeley is energy reliability. So, Kim, you and I know everyone else witnessed what happened with Hurricane Sandy and Hurricane Katrina, and you know the devastation that happened after those storms was was really magnified, and there was a cascading set of impacts that came from loss of power. You know, and some of the communities impacted by those storms um, had no power for weeks, 
and and that really crippled the ability of the the local governments and their partners to provide um, important basic services to people when they needed it most. So cities around the country and around the world witnessed that, and and you know out here in the Bay Area, we're not worried about the next hurricane, but we aren't worried about the next big earthquake and what that means for our access to power and our ability to perform critical functions after that disaster. So, so one way that you can think about backup power is the conventional way, which is a, you know, a, a, a generator. Out here we have big diesel generators attached to certain critical facilities, and you fill them with diesel and you hope that they turn on when the power goes out, and that's one way of providing backup power. Um, but there's a there's really kind of a narrow benefit to a generator. It just provides power. And there's a lot of downsides. It pollutes, you have, you're relying on diesel, you have to maintain it. So we've, through, the work, through our work in the resilience strategy, we've approached backup power in a different way. Um, looking, at the, looking at that challenge, and trying to find solutions that are consistent with this resilience approach, uh, consistent with an approach that creates more than one benefit and engages more than one set of stakeholders. So we're looking a lot at, at the concept of microgrids. And a microgrid enables one building or multiple buildings to operate independently of the main grid when the main grid is disrupted. And a microgrid can be powered by clean sources of energy like solar, wind, and backup batteries, and also existing diesel, diesel generation. So a microgrid provides the same benefit as a diesel generator, but it creates uh, environmental benefits, it can create economic benefits, and you also have the energy reliability benefit. So I think microgrids are a good example of what resilience looks like on the ground for a city government. It's a much different solution than a diesel generator. It provides one of the same benefits, provides a much broader set of benefits beyond it, and that's what resilience looks like. And uh, a lot of the work that we're doing now is sort of similar in that we're trying to find ways to create solutions that create a whole host of benefits beyond just one. I love that example you gave, Timothy, because I feel like that's something that folks can really relate to, that, that you know, specific on-the-ground example. And so as you were speaking, you know, I, I love how you framed um, resilience as kind of this practice or, or approach you know, and looking at multiple benefits for multiple stakeholders. Based on that definition, you know, do you see it being synonymous with sustainability or is there something different between sustainability and resilience in your opinion? I, you know, I see sustainability as a really important component of, of being resilient. So a, a community that's, that's resilient is really prepared for a whole range of potential shocks like acute shocks, like an earthquake or a severe storm or a disease outbreak or a, or, a, or a terrorist attack. These are acute shocks that happen in a short period of time but that have significant consequences. A resilient community is prepared for a range of those shocks, but also prepared for a range of the sort of the slower moving stresses, like sea level rise or income inequality or racial disparities, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, no community is ever 100% resilient. The way you advance resilience is, like I said, you try and take on as many of those challenges at, at, at once through multi-benefit, multi-stakeholder, uh, multi-stakeholder solutions. Part of being a resilient community is uh, environmental 
sustainability, is reducing the emissions that cause global warming. That creates a whole host of benefits for your, our community. Uh, preparing for the impacts of climate change, like drought, extreme heat, and sea level rise. Those are really important components of being resilient. But if you're only focused on environmental sustainability, you're not thinking about uh, disaster preparedness and affordable housing and social justice and public safety, then you're missing a whole other host of, of, of issue areas that make your community really better prepared for all the challenges that we face as, as communities. And, and as you know, communities are really on, on the front lines, right? Um, more and more people moving to our urban, our urban areas, our cities are growing rapidly. We're really at the front lines of the solutions to resilience and to sustainability, and we're really uh, at the front lines of the impacts uh, from climate change and other and other of the shocks and stresses that we face. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's important to note there that um, the linkage that you're seeing, and and I guess if folks really do look at sustainability just on the environmental sustainability side, which is very common, we often do that. We forget about the other two legs of the stool uh, around economy and equity, um, certainly the way you're describing resilience is, is seems like it fits in nicely with those three-legged three stool of sustainability, and these really seem to go hand-in-hand. Hand. Sustainability is trying to move us forward in a positive way while resilience is making sure that we're prepared for anything that may come at us, which these, this day and age <laughs> is all the time, right? Whether it's... Um, right you know, right. riots or, as you're saying, earthquakes um, or something longer term like sea level rise. Okay. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, I think it's important to get the terms right. I think it's good we're having this conversation. I think, though, that it's difficult to get the terms right without providing really tangible examples of what that, that looks like. And that's kind of why I wanted to talk through this example of the microgrid. I've got several other examples that I can point to, but... It's, you know, when it comes down to it, it, it is hard to keep up with the terminology that, you know, people like us use and, and other planners and sustainability professor, professionals and um, resilience officers. There's, there's sort of a jargon, you mm -hmm. know, in the work that we do, and I think it's really important that we break that down. And, um, and so whenever I'm in, in Berkeley and speaking to our community members, our city council, other staff, I, I really put a lot of emphasis on... Um, on uh, not using terms that can sound sort of academic and hard to understand and really focusing in on the work and what it means for our the people that we that we serve and providing really clear examples of what that that looks like i think that's that's a great approach communication is really key and uh, certainly i know in this field we have not made it easy for ourselves <laughs> to communicate right. to others when that's essentially what we what needs to happen um well, I guess following along that kind of communicating to others, um, you know, earlier this year, Berkeley, you guys completed your resilience strategy that you had mentioned as part of your Rockefeller Foundation 100 Resilient Cities program. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the process you went through to develop that strategy. You know, what went into that? Is that is that something any local government can or should do? Is that, you know, is that needs to be part of a, a master plan moving forward? Um, you know, give us a little sense of kind of what it took to develop that strategy in Berkeley. Sure, yeah. So so Berkeley was one of the first 32 cities selected by the Rockefeller Foundation to participate in 100 resilient cities. And they've since, over the last couple of years, named all 100 cities. 
And all 100 of those cities are working on, on developing a resilient strategy for their, um, for their city. And, and like I said before, as we were talking about what resilience means, each one of these strategies is focused on helping our cities address um, our most pressing high priority challenges. And many of those challenges overlap across cities, you know, to some, to some degree, actually to a large degree. Every city in the network, for example, is thinking about the implications of climate change, right? Um, every city in the network is affected by some sort of natural um, disaster or threat. So there are a lot of overlapping challenges, but there's also some unique challenges. Some cities are focused much more on, um, on uh, public safety and, and violence. Some focus, uh, cities are much more focused on, on social and racial disparity. Um, but as you look across the set of resilience strategies that have been developed, there's a lot of commonalities. And one of the commonalities is, like, is like I said, this multi-benefit, multi-stakeholder approach to finding solutions to our most pressing challenges. Um, many of the challenges that we face in Berkeley uh, have a lot of layers to them, right? So Berkeley and like most cities, uh, we have uh, infrastructure challenges. We have deferred maintenance on our infrastructure in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Our stormwater system is about 100 years old, 100 miles of pipe that are about 100 years old. Um, so infrastructure in and of itself, for example, is a, is a challenge. But when you layer on top of that challenge sea level rise and more extreme rains, you have this already suffering infrastructure system and the challenge there is exacerbated by this other layer of challenge related to, to climate change. And so our approach in the resilience strategy it was to really kind of clearly define what some of our main challenges are and how they're very interrelated and integrated, right? So the stormwater infrastructure was, was one example. Um, we're an earthquake country, um, so obviously there's a, a threat there. It's, it's not a matter of, of when the next earthquake will happen, it's a matter of or it's not a matter of if it will happen, it's a matter of when it will happen. And we know that not everyone in our community will be affected equally by the next earthquake. You know, our residents that live in uh, substandard housing that have not been able to invest in seismic improvements, for example, will be more significantly impacted than, than other well-to-do neighbors that, that have. So there's a physical challenge there, a physical shock, but it exacerbates its existing social stress that we face in our community and other communities face as well. So we developed the our process of developing the resilience strategy was, was first, okay, let's figure out what our highest priority challenges are. Let's clearly articulate and illustrate what those challenges are so that we can do some problem solving around them. And then let's work collaboratively internally and externally to identify solutions that help us address those challenges. And I look at the resilience strategy as sort of a thoughtful piece of work that enables us to have a better grasp of what we're dealing with, what our challenges are, a better grasp of what some of the solutions are that we can then go out and, and find resources to advance through uh, outside funding, through um, other types of financing, through um, our own general fund. Um, so for us, it's sort of an organizing strategy that gets us focused on some of the most important challenges that we face and, and what we need to do about it. Well, and I mean, that sounds great. It, it doesn't sound so earth-shatteringly different, right, than a sustainability plan or, or another type of planning process that a community might engage in. It, it seems that you guys have maybe a, um, 
I don't want to say better, but maybe a better uh, approach as far as, again, looking at those multiple benefits for multiple stakeholders, but you've got a nice framework. But, I mean, is it safe to say that it's using this framework and then for the most part it's it's what an effective planning process needs to look like? I think it's, I would completely agree with that. I, I, you know, it, it's, a, it's a strategy that focuses on these challenges as I said, but on any, any strategy or plan you're developing, whether it's a sustainability plan or a zero waste plan or a transportation plan, the first step is really articulating the, the, the objectives and the problems you're trying to overcome, right? What are your objectives? Get clear about that. What are some of the things that stand in the way of achieving those objectives? And what do you need to do about it? And it you know, it's basic uh, planning 101. It's got, you know, resilient, the, the, the term resilience attached to it because the approach is much more sort of multi-benefit, multi-stakeholder in nature. That's not something that we invented or that Rockefeller Foundation invented. The benefit of working with them on the resilience strategy was that there's a constant nudge and a constant reminder, a constant push to make sure that you're stepping out of silos, that you're working with multiple stakeholders and you're developing multiple benefit solutions. These are all things that we've done in the past, right? Mm -hmm. so this wasn't invented with the resilience strategy, but there's a, I, what I like about it is that there's a really, really strong, consistent emphasis there on this multidisciplinary, multi-benefit uh, approach. Well, that's huge because I think it's important for our audience to hear like this is not rocket science. You do not necessarily have to have received funding from Rockefeller. This is just, it's smart planning. And if, if folks can follow the framework that um, the 100 Resilient Cities is using, which, I mean, your, your strategies are publicly available, uh, this does not need to be a difficult task. No, I think, I think you, you do not need a chief resilience officer to develop a resilient strategy. And you don't even need to call it a resilient strategy. You know, I mean, it, it, for us, it's an organizing strategy. We're, we're in the midst also of developing a citywide strategic plan. And the strategic plan is really kind of will build on the resilient strategy work. It's a, the resilient strategy is a launching, a launching point for our broader strategic plan that will touch every issue that we face as an organization, whereas a resilient strategy focused on a subset of some of our most high priority um, uh, challenges. Um, you know, I, I think uh, whether you have a chief resilience officer or not, the main role that I play and that, and that uh, anyone could play in a local government if the capacity is there is to be able to work across departments within the organization, be able to help people better articulate what are some of the challenges that they face in the short, medium, and long term, and then identify resources to attach to those, to those challenges. That's a lot of my role within the organization is sort of a, a silo-busting role. Mm -hmm. I, I, float, I, I float across all of the departments. I help people understand uh, what are some of the most pressing challenges, and then I try and leverage whatever resources and relationships I have internally and externally to help organize around those. It's, it's really sort of a management um, silo-busting role. You don't need a chief resilience officer to be able to play that, that role, but it is important that somebody or some group of people within city government does, does play that role. Well, and that's interesting. I like how you describe that as silo busting. I know we know that that is so essential uh, for on the ground action to really be, you know, effective. And, you know, in the early days, the, the chief sustainability officers or the sustainability directors or sustainability coordinators, whatever they mm -hmm. were called in the different communities. I mean, many of their roles were 
kind of designed to be done the same way, yet a lot of them ended up just doing all the work. What do you think, you know, what would be that those tips you have of, as far as how your role, you know, whether it be a CRO or just what you personally did to have it be different than people assuming, okay, great, he's going to take care of all that stuff now versus actually, you know, breaking down silos and helping people to be part of this effort? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and, you know, I think part of the reason I have some comfort with the chief resilience officer role is because I was in that sustainability director role before, before the position I'm in now. And it takes a lot of the same approach and same skill set, right? Because the, the sustainability office in the city is effective when sustainability becomes a part of what everybody else does, yes. right? If the, if the sustainability office is just over in the corner, you know, um, always trying to get other people to play with them and, and do more green things, and they're seen as more of a, uh, a, a nag or, or seen as more of adding, adding work without value, then it's very hard to be effective. But if the sustainability officer can get uh, buy-in from the city leadership and if the sustainability officer can find mechanisms for integrating environmental sustainability into how the organization operates, um, that's how you achieve scale so that it becomes part of everyone's job and not just the sustainability, you know, the few staff in the sustainability office's job. And there's a lot of ways to go about, there's a lot of mechanisms for sort of that type of organizational change around sustainability or whatever topic it is that you're, that you're working on, right? Um, one mechanism, we, there's several mechanisms that we use here. So one that I think many cities use is um, whenever a project or a policy is being proposed to a city council, uh, for adoption, um, staff have to articulate the uh, how environmental sustainability considerations were, were integrated into the design of that program or that or that policy. Um, as we develop a, our work plans here at the City of Berkeley, every work plan has to have a sustainability element that asks the question: Okay, how is this work plan consistent or inconsistent with the city's adopted sustainability uh, plans? Um, having sustainability staff at the table as infrastructure uh, upgrades are designed and developed is really key for us. So as we do seismic upgrades here in Berkeley to our own facilities, we always have a sustainability staff at the table that's talking about, okay, as we do seismic upgrades, let's make sure we integrate the energy and the water improvements at the same, at the same time. And, and here over time, that's become part of the culture so that you're never just doing one thing. You're not just doing a seismic safety upgrade. You're doing a seismic energy water upgrade at the same time, right? And, and so that, those are some of the ways that we integrate sustainability throughout our operations and our, our services. That's great. And I think, I mean, you really touched on this. Having folks there is key. And, and we've mentioned earlier, communication is really key. I think, you know, I actually am, um, I'm the chair for the Center for Sustainability for the American Public Works Association. And I'm also a member of the American Planning Association, and it's very interesting because planners and public works have not historically been great communicators with each other. You know, there's a lot of walls that often go up, but, you know, we held a, as part of APWA, we held a session at APA this past year on breaking down silos and communication, and so much of it is coming into a conversation, not with all the answers, but really listening listening to what these folks have to say about their own challenges and, and their own needs before you're laying in on, okay, well, this is what we have to do for sustainability or resilience or whatever it is. 
um, you know, I think that communication piece is so important that you're coming in with, with, with the right approach. Um, so you don't really put people off, but rather are inviting them into a dialogue and letting them know that you're there to listen, you're there to help, and, you know, you can ha- hopefully help each other moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think the quickest way to turn people off and lose friends is to constantly be asking people for something and not really providing any value in return. So I, I think you're right that it does start with listening and getting a sense of um, what people's objectives are and then trying to think about how can you bring some values and resources to the table that help them meet that objective and maybe go a step further and advance sustainability or, or, or resilience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have the ability to bring some value to the table, either in the form of good ideas or uh, funding or, or technical assistance that's low cost or free, then, um, then it's very difficult to be an effective in the role of sustainability director or, or resilience officer. And, uh, and, and for me, that's why this partnership with 100 Resilient Cities has been so useful um, because um, 100 Resilient Cities really invests in uh, the success of the cities that they're funding. They uh, offer a set of what they call platform partners. These are technical assistance providing, providing firms that work across all the sets of issues that we face in our city. So they have engineering firms, they have firms that specialize in outreach or financing. And so as I'm going around and understanding what our needs are within our city, I can match technical assistance to those needs and I can bring that technical assistance to the table. And that enabled me to, to generally expand the conversation around, around what a project is and how many benefits it will create because I'm able to bring resources to the table that help advance um, the work that needs to get get done. Um, and so that's a great resource for me that I leverage as much as I, I possibly can, and it's, um, it's adding a lot of value in Berkeley. That's great. And, you know, I know that's obviously one of the great benefits of being part of this program. Are there resources that you can think of um, or suggest for those communities that, you know, weren't part of that 100 uh, resilient cities group that you know they don't have platform partners um, are there other things out there that you can suggest as far as places to go to find resources my first suggestion is to think about in your very own community are there any potential institutional partners that you have the, the you know you have the potential to work more closely with than you have in the past so uh, many cities for example are have universities or um, other academic institutions within their community, and I and I think that's a great place to start. You have faculty and and, and students um, that have a, a research need across a broad set of issue areas. Um, cities always are in, are in need of, of some form of, of research to help them better articulate some sort of challenge that they're facing or some potential solution. So I would say start there. Start with the the organizations that are in your own. Um, backyard, the academic institutions, the nonprofits, the business associations. Um, we do have access to the platform partners through Rockefeller, but, uh, but we very actively seek partnerships locally, completely independently of our Rockefeller uh, Foundation uh, partnership. The micro good example that I mentioned earlier, um, we partnered with Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, which we are extremely lucky to have in our backyard in Berkeley. And the two of us got together and um, developed a grant proposal to the California Energy Commission 
and having the city and the lab on the same team mm-hmm. um, made us very competitive. And we received a $1.5 million grant to design Berkeley's first uh, urban, urban microgrid. Very um, cool. And there's so many more, there's so much more potential there to explore. So, you know, you don't need, it's nice for us to have this partnership with 100 resilient cities, but it's not, uh, it's not something that you need in order to foster, you know, really productive uh, programs and policies with some of your local, your local partners. Um, you know, there's another organization that I, I find a lot of value in. Uh, it's called the Urban Sustainability Directors Network. Mm-hmm. Uh, USDN, and this is a network that Berkeley is very active in. It's kind of like 100 Our City. It's a 100, 100 resilient cities. It's a it's a network of cities, um, all focused in this in this case with USDN on sustainability, urban sustainability. Uh, it's about 120 or so cities in U.S. and Canada, and it's all cities working on very similar challenges and developing innovative solutions and then sharing them. Um, and uh, I really encourage other cities. To look at USDN as a as a resource, um, any city can participate in it and, and access the the benefits. That's great. Yeah, USDN certainly has uh, been quite the resource, and it's now like seven years. I want to say that it's been around. Yeah, yeah, about seven or eight years old. Yeah. Yeah, I me- I remember fundraising for it in the early days at Ickley. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, I, it's yeah, really yeah, nice. Lots of good folks. Yeah. yeah then there's some there's some past Ickley folks that uh, that help. Of that course, Ickley's everywhere. We are our Ickley, former Ickleyites, were all over the place, right? Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, collaborations, uh, you know, Lawrence Berkeley Lab and all that, which is great. That's super exciting. I'm going to look forward to following up on a podcast on how your microgrid's doing in like yeah. a year or so. Um, but you know, you've also been collaborating through 100 RC and presumably otherwise um, with San Francisco and Oakland. Um, yeah. you, you guys have all adopted your resilient strategies. Can you just talk a little bit about kind of that Bay Area collaborative and, and how that's working? Yeah. So Berkeley, Oakland, and San Francisco were three of the first 32 cities selected by 100RC. And we were the first and I think still one of the only sort of regional cohorts of, of cities. And uh, I think that was brilliant because, you know, our, our three cities work a lot together already on a broad set of issues. But, but 100RC, the fact that we were all in this network together was just another opportunity to kind of build on that uh, collaboration. And it makes a lot of sense because obviously we're right next to each other and we face a lot of the same challenges, a lot of the same shocks and a lot of the same stresses, for example. So this, uh, the fact that we were all participating really led to some other cool, innovative forms of collaboration that we're now exploring and, and, uh, and advancing. And, and one of them that we're working on now that I'm most excited about um, is called Resilience by Design, which is a, 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 a program that we're working on together to launch that would help our region better prepare for the impacts of climate change. And this program builds on uh, Rebuild by Design, which was a program launched in the wake of Hurricane Sandy and funded by federal funds as well as, um, as, well as um, private foundations um, to help the, the Sandy-affected region um, recover and better prepare for the next shock. And uh, it's, a, it's a design competition. So uh, the idea is to invite design professionals, uh, architects, landscape architects, land use planners, 
um, from around the world, teams uh, join up and they develop a, a land use design. Some of these are sort of like green space, green infrastructure design, park designs that help you know, cities better absorb storm water, for example. Um, and each, each uh, group of designers will, 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 will compete um, for the best design. And then the idea is that we would then work together to get that work funded and, and get the capital required to, to build whatever that design is. So the idea is to really leverage the expertise of a worldwide set of uh, experts that bring attention to this issue of climate change, but also develop tangible solutions that help us prepare uh, as a region. And, and you know that program in our region is just, we're just in the design phase for that program, but that would not have happened if uh, the three of us weren't participating together in funded RC. That's great. That is such such a cool outcome for the innovative work you guys already do but to now bring it to the broader region and engage folks in a competition like this, that's, uh, again, another great podcast topic, Timothy. I'm going to be talking to you a lot in the coming years. I love it. You know, so I know we're getting to the end of our time here. I think, you know, one of the things that I really like that struck me in your in Berkeley's resilience strategy was just some of the very simple things around, like, connecting neighbors. Like, this is such an easy step um, that, you know, was so commonplace not that long ago. I know when we were kids, that was the thing, right? You knew your neighbors, you hung out with them. Um, but now, you know, we've become, you know, almost a virtual world and we all just pay attention to our phones and don't look up and say hello as much as we used to. Um, but, you know, just connecting neighbors, especially those that are uh, in need and knowing, you know, knowing to check on, you know, elderly folks or, or other folks that are, you know, after a storm or, or whatever. I mean, to me, that's such basic advice. And um, yeah. it's an easy thing for folks to do. I mean, what would be some of those other like very simple things that, you know, people could start doing right now, three to five things like you could do this right now to become more resilient? Well, yeah, we know we know that people fare better, they recover more quickly and more effectively from a disaster like an earthquake or a hurricane um, when people know each other at the neighborhood scale. We've seen that in the research across cities across the U.S. and across the world, right? This connectivity at the neighborhood level. And, and that connectivity is, is beneficial in the event of a disaster, but just as you, as you were saying, how beneficial is it just to sort of your culture and your quality of life, too, you know, to know your neighbors and have friends on your, on your block? Especially when you when you know who the people are on your block, they maybe need a little bit of extra help if the power goes out or if there's a big storm or, or something like that. So uh, we really encourage in Berkeley um, that connectivity at the block at the block level, and and we have some sort of silly incentives to help people get together. Um, we essentially want people to have block parties. We want you to have a block party, cook some food have some beers and get to know your friends. And when you do that, you know, write people's name and emails down so you're connected uh, online, figure out who might need some extra help and invite someone like me or someone on my team to a party to come talk a little bit about what, um, how you can be better prepared before the next earthquake um, happens. You know, what, what are the supplies that you should have, um, how you can notify your, your distant relatives that you're, that you're okay, basic tips. So one of the, my number one suggestions for resilience in Berkeley is a very, very simple one, and that is uh, have a block party and get to know your neighbors. In Berkeley, if you do that, we will give you, there's a few kind of, I, I, kind of weird incentives that we provide. So one of the 
is a dumpster. <laughs> you have a if you have a block party and you invite uh, my team to come to that block party to give you just a few minute overview on disaster preparedness or public health uh, or public safety. Um, you can get a dumpster for a long weekend on your block for free, and you can uh, dump all of the crap that you've been storing up in your attic and your garage uh, nice. in that dumpster that you've just been waiting to get rid of. We'll take that dumpster away, and we'll recycle everything that's recyclable, and we'll uh, landfill the rest and uh, reuse whatever can be reused. And, and that is one of those kind of weird incentives that people just love here. And the only reason, reason we provide it is because we want people to get, uh, to get together. That's great. I love that. That's such a cool example. I know my neighbors would love that, cleaning out their <laughs> attics and, <laughs> and basements. Everybody. So. <laughs> I mean, people have a lot of crap. I mean, over the years, you know, if you live in one place long enough, you just start to gather stuff. So uh, people seem to like that. That's cool. So how many block parties have you had so far in Berkeley? Oh, my God. Many, many, many. Yeah, my own my own block. We have a couple a year. Oh wow! Uh, that we organize, and it's just so fun because you, you know you can close the street down. It's really easy to come to the city and get a little permit, and then we give barricades um, that you can pick up, and then you close the block, and the kids get to ride their bikes and play wiffle ball in the street, and the parents have a have a potluck and get to know each other. So on my block alone, we do two a year, and there's you know throughout the city on any given weekend, there's there's people having some sort of party. That's super cool. I love that. I'm going to try that. Although we're coming into winter here in the Boston area, so probably I'll have to wait till it gets warmer yeah. again. <laughs> the block party yeah. in January isn't as popular as um, right. June might be. <laughs> yeah, the weather will definitely affect your uh, your turnout. You might want to be strategic about that. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> um, so I guess those. What are those last three things? Other local government folks, um, you know, listening here. What What are those kind of three easy things that they could start doing um, to really take steps towards where you guys are at? Well, you know, I think a lot of it starts with leadership in here. You know, I think we're fortunate. We have a city manager and a mayor and council that um, I'm in constant communication with about the work that we're doing, and and they're very bought into this resilience-based approach. So I think fostering a conversation at the leadership level making sure there's a role within the organization that does effectively work across departments, um, having a formal way to bring department directors and managers together collaboratively on a regular basis. Um, that's kind of like foundational work that I focus a lot on here is just building those internal connections. Uh, and I'd really, well, I'd really recommend that other cities um, foster those as well. And I know many cities do this really effectively, and I look to other cities for those examples as well. Um, you know, and then, and then external collaboration is also really key. So, you know, we talked about this, but think about, you know, who, who, what institutions and organizations within your community could add value to the work that you're, that you're doing. And why not have a conversation, have an opening conversation, open yourself up to external partnerships that you haven't had before, not just for the sake of collaboration and, and partnership, but really really for the sake of adding, um, adding some innovation and adding, adding some value that maybe you haven't had in the, in, in the past. Maybe there's some local experts that can provide new perspective to a policy or program that you're designing. Uh, and that doesn't take a lot of effort to start to foster those conversations. And I, and I think it more broadly helps cities build more trust uh, within the community. Uh, you know, the more external we're facing, the more open we are to collaboration, 
um, the more trust that is fostered within the community. So I think those things, that, that internal, multi-departmental, multidisciplinary approach is critical and being open to, to additional external partnerships that can add value um, has so many benefits. And those are sort of foundational parts of, I think, being a, a resilient community. Well, those are fantastic. So for, for our listeners, be sure to get out there and kind of build those internal connections and, and grow your champions within your local government. Uh, find those external partners, those institutions and experts, those others out there that as Timothy's saying, can really establish good relationships with and have a, you know, symbiotic relationship. And, you know, I'm just going to add that something we mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast, which is really thinking about your communication um, and, you know, how you are talking about what your ultimate objectives are here. And I think, you know, if you're all in the same community, then ultimately you want your community to thrive um, through anything. Uh, so it should be easy to align kind of what you're thinking and where you're all trying to get to very easily. So, Timothy, as always, it is such a pleasure chatting with you. Your on-the-ground experience is uh, amazing, and you're just constantly innovating and trying new things. I think it's such a great example for the rest of the, the country and the world. So thanks for everything that you do, and uh, thanks for taking the time to hang out with us at SAS Talk. Thanks, Cam. It was good, good talking with you. I look forward to next time. All right, and based on all these great examples, there's clearly going to be a lot more. So uh, (laughs) I will be talking to you soon. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you for joining this episode of SAS Talk with Kim. You can listen to other podcasts in our sustainability action series at sastalkwithkim.com. Remember that action is the key to your community's sustainable future. What will you act on today?